Michigan's lakes and rivers are our state's pride and glory. But these waterways aren't what they used to be. They've undergone some extreme changes in the post-industrial world. Climate change is an obvious culprit, but there are other issues at hand that are disrupting wildlife and industry alike. Today, we're talking about invasive species and what they mean for Michigan's water. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Later in the show, we'll get to what exactly some of these invasive species are and efforts to reduce them. First, though, we wanted to bring you a story from our production assistant, Tessa Kresh. She went out to a commercial fishery to see what invasive species mean to the work. I'll let Tessa take it from here. That's the sound of fish being taken directly off the boat. They're being prepared to get processed at the Bayport Fish Company. The Bayport Fish Company is a small, family-owned commercial fishery located in Michigan's Thumb. It sits on Lake Huron, Saginaw Bay. Established in 1895, it's been operated by several owners. But for the last 45 years, it's been run by the Williams family. Uh, my name is Todd Williams. When did you start in the fishing industry? To make money, 1978. How old were you? I was, uh, I was 28 years old. Since Todd started working in the commercial fishing industry 45 years ago, a lot has changed. Well, it's changed drastically, actually. Uh, when we first took over, it used to be mostly carp, catfish, uh, quillback, suckers, rough fish, and yellow perch, plus a variety of other fish, but not in great amounts. I know in the 80s, when they first bought it, the early 80s, they were catching millions of pounds of carp, catfish, and, and walleye a year. This is Lakin Williams, Todd's daughter. She manages the fishery these days. Um, now we probably catch right around 100 to 150,000 pounds of whitefish a year. So not only has the, you know, the amount of fish we catch changed, but the species of what we're catching has also changed. The ecology out there is definitely different um, over the last 40 years. So what happened? Two words, invasive species. Non-native fish and plants have done a number on the Great Lakes, creating massive changes to the aquatic ecosystem. Of course, when a sea lamprey came in, they devastated a lot of the uh, deep water fish, uh, lake trout and whitefish. So there wasn't a lot of those around. Sea lamprey, often referred to as the vampire fish, are an invasive species in the Great Lakes. If you've ever seen one, you would know. They have these elongated eel-like bodies and circular mouths filled with sharp teeth. They attach onto a host fish and drain it of its bodily fluids. The lamprey were found in the Great Lakes starting in the 1920s and 30s. They did major damage to the population of native fish, like lake trout and walleye, among other species. And then came the mussels. Once the zebra mussels became established back in, I think it was like 86 or somewhere in that area, they start, they filter like a liter of water a day, each one, and they're about the size of a pea, and there's millions and billions of them so basically they filter all the food out of the water before the little fish get a chance to eat it so there's less food for the fry which of course turn into bigger fish so there's less bigger fish not only that but the clear water that the zebra and quagga mussels are responsible for allows these fish to be seen more easily by predator birds 
like cormorants. Yeah, before the water was not very clear. You could see maybe a foot down between the runoff, the fertilizers from the farms, which grew food actually in the lake. Once that water was clear, the cormorants just started becoming astronomically uh, increased in numbers. So between those and the billions of walleyes that are out there, they pretty much clean the yellow perch clean you know, cleared up. There's not a whole lot for us to, to harvest. So they turned to deep water fish, whitefish. While it took the Williams family four to five years to get used to the deeper waters, they figured it out. After an eight-hour day on the water, the Bayport fishermen came back with 5,000 pounds of whitefish. When the boat docks, they scoop up baskets of whitefish using a dip net and dump the fish on the sorting table. The staff surround the sorting table and quickly throw the fish into their designated totes. We are sorting by sizes. Um, one tote for fish four pounds and up, the jumbos. One tote for fish three to four pounds. One tote for fish two to three pounds. And one tote for fish under two pounds, because those ones we don't fillet. So the big ones, the four pound and up, we fillet by hand. Customers and their kids crowd around the window that separates the retail store and the processing house. They gather around and watch the staff sort, scale, and fillet today's catch. Cool here with teeth. Yeah. And then I rinse the fish off and I go against the scales to descale the fish. Here, I'll show you. It can get messy. Okay. This is Shandy Havens, one of the staff members. She's showing me the descaling process. I get a grip, grip on them and just take the scales right off. And I get under the belly. And do you do that with every single fish? No, we do have a big scaler machine back there. And after they descale, they fillet. And what's the process of filleting a fish? Um, they remove the head and the bottom fin, and then they cut down the back, and then slowly work their way to the belly, and then flip the fish over, reverse the process on the other side, and then it goes down to the next person who does the pin boning, which is a V cut in the meat to remove that line of pin bone so that we can say that our fillets are 99.9% boneless. <laughs> That's Ann Carter. She's a second-generation Bayport Fish Company employee. Her dad started working there in 1974. Despite the speed at which they're able to sort, it takes at least an hour to sort through all the white fish. Is that the last bit? Yes. Oh my goodness. Finally, I know. It takes forever, doesn't it, just to get them off the boat. <laughs> That's crazy. Processing days like these are long. Sometimes they work into the late hours of the night, but the staff don't seem to mind. It's just nice to know that I'm processing food that people take home and eat. While they get significantly less fish than they used to, Bayport Fish Company still has a lot of loyal customers. People come from all over to pick up some fish. Indiana, Ohio, Canada, people that used to live here, they come up in the summer from Arizona, they come here, Florida, you know, wherever. We'll get people from Ann Arbor, Port Huron, Detroit. I had somebody from Grand Rapids the other day in Ohio. Um, they find us. I'm not sure how, but they know we're here, and we've been here for over 100 years. So it's definitely, we're definitely a stop on their list, which is actually really cool. Oh, my gosh. We've been coming since we, since I was a kid. This is Crystal Kerchak. She drove two hours from Sanford, 
She's got a cooler in hand preparing to take home four pounds of fish. Yeah, we used to live in Munger and then we moved to Vassar. So it was like every time we came out to the beach, we stopped here. Oh my gosh, and what's your favorite thing to get here? Perch. <laughs> Have you noticed any changes ever since you started coming here? Not really. It still smells lovely. I love the smell of it. It's always clean in here. And they always have good fish. (laughs) Bayport has been a fishing town since the 1840s. During the 1920s and 30s, at its peak, it was known as one of the largest freshwater fishing ports in the world. Not so much anymore. There used to be over a thousand fisheries in Michigan, and now there's less than 10, and we are one of those 10 left. So I'm very proud to say we've shifted our business. Yes, we don't catch as much, but we sell more retail to the end consumer, which makes it more possible for us to be here. It's been a tough road, but the Williams family have managed to weather the changes invasive species have created in the commercial fishing industry. While sea lamprey, zebra, and quagga mussels and other invasive species continue to alter the ecosystem, Todd Williams is taking the changes in stride, just like he always has. I don't know what we can do about it, but time will tell. For Stateside, I'm Tessa Kresh. We'll be back in a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Okay, so we heard about one way that an invasive species is changing life on the lakes. But we wanted to know more about what invasive species mean for other parts of the ecosystem and learn about mitigating their effects. Joe Lattimore studies invasive species on inland lakes and is a faculty member at Michigan State University. Also with us, Ashley Elgin. She works for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and focuses on the bottom parts of the Great Lakes. Ashley, Joe, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. So nice to be here again. A lot of folks listening right now may already be familiar with the concept of invasive species. But for the sake of clarity, Ashley, do you want to talk in a little bit more detail about what exactly makes a species invasive when we're talking about the ecosystems of the lakes? Happy to. So an invasive species is a unique category of a species that is non-native to an area. And what makes it invasive is that it has measurable negative impacts on the ecosystem or economic impacts. I will mention, too, that invasive species and non-native species are often brought somewhere as mediated by human activity. Right. You both have specialty areas, as I mentioned, with species that have invaded our lakes. Joe, could you maybe talk about some of the species of concern that you've been following? And then, Ashley, after that, maybe you explain what you've been looking at? 
Sure. So I work primarily on our inland waters, our inland lakes and streams across Michigan. And one of the groups that's probably the most abundant and causing the most impacts is actually plants, aquatic plants that we find moving into our ecosystems that aren't native. They're behaving in an invasive way. Those are coming from a couple of different pathways that I'm interested in. One of those is boating and fishing, that pathway of moving equipment and then potentially hitchhiking stowaway organisms that may be attached to that gear when we do that kind of hobby. Also, the aquarium and nursery trades, species of plants in particular that are purchased as ornamentals and then introduced into our system, often inadvertently by folks not realizing that they could have an impact on our natural waterways. How does that work? The things that are purchased for aquariums, is it when people are cleaning out their tanks that something like that might happen? Sure, that can certainly happen. And also, if not just with aquarium maintenance or pond maintenance, but also sometimes we just can't keep that aquarium anymore. Maybe we're moving or we got a crack in that fish tank and we just can't keep those species anymore. Sometimes the first instinct that we have, we want to be kind to those uh, living things that were in that tank. And so maybe we think, well, we could release them out in a local stream or or pond and, and they can live out their life there. But the problem with that is that often they either won't survive or if they do survive, they might just be hardy and aggressive enough to actually take over that pond or stream. Ashley, it sounds like your research focuses a little bit more on on threats that maybe come in through the shipping industry. Can you say a little bit more about what species you're interested in? Yeah, so I can give more of an organismal perspective here that we have invasive Zebra and quagga mussels are a major aspect of the research program at NOAA and and many other programs around the Great Lakes area. That is a benthic-dwelling mollusk that is found throughout the Great Lakes and on lakes attached to hard structures. So maybe people have experience seeing that, especially the zebra mussels pervasive in inland lakes as well. Then we have smaller organisms in the water, such as a spiny water flea. It's an invasive zooplankton. There are several fish that may be familiar, invasive fish, including round goby. And then a very notable invader is sea lamprey. That is a a different vector that came in when the Welland Canal was, was built and expanded its range because of that. But those are some very notable invasive animals in the Great Lakes and in the Michigan area. A lot of school kids know the story about how species like zebra mussels and quagga mussels have been have been moving around in our lakes since the 1980s, and that we can see their impact on how clear the water looks and their shells all over beaches. But Ashley, could you explain in a little bit more detail what changes they're bringing to our lake bed ecosystem? Yes. So they act as true ecosystem engineers in that they come in, and as you mentioned, they clear the water. They are very effective filter feeders. So they're removing a lot of phytoplankton or algae that's in the water. So you increase water clarity, and that changes the bottom. You now have more of the bottom that's receiving sunlight. Another change to the bottom is they physically change the substrate that's down there, and that changes the environment for other bottom-dwelling species. And they also just change where the energy goes in the lake, and that a lot of it is sucked down to the bottom into the mussels instead of being up in the water. And why is that an issue for the species that live on the bottom? You can have changes in how sediments flow, how nutrients are processed on the bottom, and you can also just change by having physical habitat differences 
it's more places to hide for some species, but it also might interfere with, say, a substrate for laying eggs for fish species. Got it. Joe, what kind of plants and problems are disrupting our natural balance? So the first thing to think about is that our healthy lakes and streams have a healthy native plant community in them. Often we either don't notice them because they're under the water, or maybe we get a little annoyed by them because they might, you know, tickle our feet when we're swimming or get tangled up in a boat prop and that kind of thing. But they're really important for the functioning of those lake systems. They're habitat for fish. They add oxygen to the water column. They help keep the water clear. But what we're seeing with these invasive plants is that they come in and they grow faster and more aggressively than our native plants. And they compete with them and sometimes win out and replace our native plants in these systems. And these are new plants, plants that aren't native to our lakes, that the fish and the invertebrates and the frogs and everything haven't evolved with. They haven't adapted to living with those. So they often don't create good quality habitat. They often do not provide the same ecosystem functions that our native plants do. And so you end up with a with a really changed lake that may not be as healthy. It may not be as clear. It may not support as many fish. And so those are some of the concerns we're, we're really looking at. I wanted to ask you both about the question of intervention in some of these chains of non-native species that are entering. I mean, Joe, we've known about these problems for a long time. Can you say a little bit about where and whether it's been feasible to try to rescue inland lakes and waterways from the kind of plant species that you're talking about? Sure. That's been a focus of research and management effort for decades now. And what we're seeing is that early detection is critical. Invasive species get that way because they typically grow and reproduce really quickly. And because of the underwater nature of most aquatic invasive species, they can really go unnoticed until they become so abundant that management options are really limited. If we detect them early, we can actually have more options available to us. You can just physically remove them. If you just find a few plants growing near a boat launch or something that has a lot of potential for a quick and effective removal, you can just go in and physically pull those plants out and you know the day is saved. But if you don't notice these invasions until you have acres upon acres of these plants in the water, then you're looking at a much more difficult, a much more expensive management prospect and maybe one that even with a lot of investment may not be successful. And at that point, your tools are are more limited too. You're not going to be able to go in and hand pull 50 acres of an invasive plant. You're typically limited to herbicide applications, which are, are tricky to manage as well and expensive. Ashley, is there any track record of success in terms of trying to keep the non-native species that have ravaged the Great Lakes in check by human means? The greatest success story there is of the sea lamprey. It was a widespread problem. They were decimating native fish populations. And it was decades of research and basin-wide coordinated binational efforts to find when is their vulnerable life stage. Well, when they're in tributaries, as, as in the larval stage, they're highly vulnerable. They found the right chemical to target them at that time. And as a result, there's a basin-wide program that requires continued maintenance but has a return many times on the, the cost of the program. So it's, that's a widespread success story. Would you say that the situation is similar in the Great Lakes, that early detection is, is probably where most people are trying to think about leveraging their efforts right now? 
Early detection is always key. However, in the Great Lakes, it's larger water bodies. So it's harder to, once it's in a water body, it is harder to contain and to do larger scale removal is extremely technically difficult. So what I would focus on more for at the Great Lakes scale, our best tool is to take a step back in that process and invest in prevention. You mentioned earlier that ballast water is a vector or shipping is a vector to bring organisms in. And regulations that started in the 2000s for ballast water have been a great improvement of reducing the number of species that even get to the Great Lakes in the first place. Because when species come internationally, they get to the Great Lakes, that is then a beachhead of invasion that radiates to inland lakes from there. And not just inland lakes in the Midwest, but throughout North America. Right. Joe Lattimore, we've heard a little bit about how these are huge problems for native species, but are there ways in which that non-native species problems have, have affected human industry? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I think about right away is is our property values on inland waters. If they are choked out with invasive weeds, for example, people don't want to live there because they can't go fishing there. They can't spend time there. And that has a huge economic impact on that community that may have had, you know, well-priced homes around those lakes or a big tourism or fishing industry coming into that town, travel. That's a big economic boom for an area. And when an invasive species comes in and ruins some of those activities for people, they're not going to want to spend their money there. They're not going to want to travel there. So there's definitely impacts on the tourism industry fishing industry, boating industry. As a result of that, a lot of the representatives of those industries across Michigan and across the nation are becoming really excellent partners in the conversation around invasive species. And they want to protect their livelihoods and the business and industry that they care about. And so we've had really great partnerships that have been started and continue to evolve certainly focuses people's attention. Ashley, was there anything through the bigger lens of of the Great Lakes that comes to mind about industry? Well, the largest industry that's impacted by invasive species is invasive mussels fouling up intake structures and, and water intake. Every water intake needs to have an engineered solution to manage the mussels. Otherwise, their pipes will clog entirely So there's whole industries around keeping the the water inflow open so that we, we can have functioning water infrastructure. Joe, Ashley, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for spending some time explaining this to us. Thank you for the opportunity, April. Thanks. We enjoyed it. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meradian, and special thanks today to Tessa Kresh. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.